What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Hidden Gems. It's Lauren, and I'm on my way to Idaho for the sentencing of Lori Vallow-Daybell, which will take place on Monday, July 31st. The sentencing will be live-streamed on our Hidden True Crime YouTube channel, so make sure to head there to subscribe and hit notifications for many on-location lives. This week takes us back to the Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell case and our Beyond the Veil series. Thus, we've decided to share some episodes we recorded during the trial that we never published here on our podcast. This particular episode was recorded live in April 2023, a few weeks into Lori Vallow Daybell's trial and the week that Lori's son, Colby Ryan, testified. Hidden, a true crime podcast. A forensic psychologist and a journalist explore the hidden motives behind unthinkable crimes while examining our deepest fears along the way. We have a really exciting hidden hour for you. John has told me that uh, there's going to be a big reveal tonight. <laughs> this is yeah. true. He's told me this. A little sarcastically, but I, th I think it's a, a bit of a different slant on the phone call with Colby. I listened to it. This is like the third or fourth time I've heard it. Finally, I think something kind of clicked for me today when I listened to it that I hadn't really seen before. John is one of the few people that had heard this phone call before court because he had sat and listened to it with uh, um, Colby. I didn't know much about it. You know, while. I'm the journalist and John's the forensic psychologist. So I, I come back and I know how to recap. I'm like, okay, this is what was said. This is what's important. Here are my live tweets. John comes home from hearing this phone call and I say, well, what, what was in this phone call? He said, well, Colby was really angry. I'm like, so tell me <laughs> right. more. Right. Um, uh, yeah. He never we're looking, told me. We're looking at things a little differently. Yeah, he never told me that Colby wanted to hit Chad in the face with a shovel. He never told me a lot of the things that were said. Uh, I was really proud of Colby. So to clarify, I am going to trial every day. Uh, I have been going every day for three weeks now. 
We've been following this case for three years. It's become personal to us. We're so grateful to be able to follow this trial. We're going to talk about this phone call. And then I would like to talk about David Warwick. So I think the two biggest witnesses, though, that John and I want to talk about here tonight are Colby and Colby, specifically Colby's jailhouse call, which John has a huge reveal for us. I don't even know this reveal. And then I really want to delve into David Warwick because I was definitely triggered. So I need to talk that one out. All right, John, where would you yeah, like let's, to let's, start? Let's start with Colby. You you mentioned that we have been following this case for a while, and, and I know Colby personally. So, you know, I, I listened to the call again and to Colby's testimony, and it was very emotional. I think every time I listen to that, it's it's very emotional. And I just want to set the stage a little bit for the call and say that it's important to understand with Colby, I believe that there's some parentification going on. And so what, what I mean by that is that sometimes in families, children will take on the role of a parent and they'll take on especially the emotional role of the parent. And I really feel like prior, at least prior to Charles, with Charles, it may have shifted a little bit, but certainly with Joe Ryan and, and Lori's previous husbands, I think Colby was her main person, her main relationship. And in that sense, Colby was very much parentified as a child. So he, I think he served this, he played this adult role for Lori quite often, at least emotionally. And my guess is that Lori really leaned on him more than a parent should for emotional support. I think that's important to know because it sets the stage for this call. It shows just how courageous this call is in the sense that parentified children in particular, they're usually not going to challenge their parent, the adult parent, as much as they might otherwise. So I think that in many ways, Colby and Lori were extremely close and very, very emotionally close. So I think for Colby to do this, even though he's obviously an adult and he's married, I think for him to do this takes a lot of courage. And it's it's a very, emo you can tell he's he's quite angry, but it's it's a very emotional call for, for Colby. And I just so I just want to acknowledge that how difficult this was for Colby and how in some ways this means that he's had to separate more and more from his mother, obviously. And this has created a lot of turmoil for him. But I really think that this is a parentified child. And I don't think in a million years Colby would have imagined that he would have been standing up to his mother like this. So and, and showing up in court and testifying against his mother. So right. so I, I want to set the stage with that because I think it's important. This isn't just a call where these two people really dislike each other or there's a lot of conflict or right. The, these are two people that were extremely close. And th this was a relationship that was probably dysfunctional as most parentified relationships are, but it was a relationship where there was a lot of emotional support given and taken, not necessarily always in a healthy manner, but to do what Colby did, I think it took a lot of courage and it took a lot of fortitude. And I think, you know, I give Kobe a lot of kudos for, for doing what he did. Yes. And I do want to say, as far as his testimony goes, his whole testimony, I was very impressed with him. He answered directly, specifically with certainty, with confidence. He did not go off on tangents. He did not sit and ponder and wonder. He answered most questions with a yes or no. He answered most questions. If he had to share a little bit more, it was one or two sentences, which is actually being an excellent witness for the court is to answer so straightforward. And he did that. At one point, though, they, they did ask him, Colby, do you love your mother? And he said, yes. And then they said, 
does your mother love you? And he said, I think so. So he had some profound, honest answers. I felt for him. Right. I, I, I don't think you just stop loving someone given their history. And even though everything's changed, I, you know, it's certainly been a unforeseen journey for Colby. It's been a difficult journey for Colby. And obviously that doesn't mean that he doesn't still love her and he's still not heartbroken. He says that in the in the call that she broke his heart. So that's yes. true. Yes. And I do think that Colby's testimony hit the jury hard. Yeah, I don't think it could it not be. It was very overwhelming. It was an emotional moment. Right. I don't know how it couldn't influence the jury unless the jury's made of steel. It's a very human and emotional call and between a mother and a son. And I put Colby's jailhouse call on our YouTube channel as well, and you can listen to it there. Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah, you think you can hide from me? I'm hiding. You just forgot me. Probably because you murdered my siblings. Probably why you're hugging me. Maybe you should understand. I didn't. I'm sorry that you felt that way. You didn't do anything, right? Mom, I've prayed for you. In my worst moments, I prayed for my siblings who swore to me were okay. I thought I could trust you. I thought that you were a completely different person. I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to make judgments when you weren't there and you don't know what happened. How? What happened? Everyone's making their own judgments. Mom, you've been shoving BS on my throat for a very long time. I'm going to talk to you. Sweet. Hey, listen to me. I'm not mad. Listen to me. Fine. Listen to me. I sat there and prayed. I can't tell you the amount of pain that I felt. From your decisions in Jesus Christ's name, it kills me to watch you sit here and tell me this is a trial. It kills me to watch you take the victims out and say that this shouldn't have happened to you. When you are telling me that Chad Dago came into your life and all of a sudden, Everything changes. And I'm talking about my spirit feels this. I prayed. I trusted you. I gave you every chance I could pass my own limitations as a human being. I pushed past all of everything to try to get to you to help my own mother. You lied to me, specifically to me. More times than I can count about this. To know that they're gone and you knew, and my phone's being texted by my little sister, who's not even alive, my little brother, who's the sweetest little kid ever, for what purpose? 
And you tell me this is God's will for my whole family, including my stepfather, to be dead. After everything you try to tell me, you can tell me right now that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is on your side. You tell me that with all the conviction in your heart that Jesus Christ is on your side right now. Please. I can't tell you that. Say it. Say his name. Say that he told you. And you followed him on exactness. Because I have prayed for you. I sat there and tried my best to forgive you and Chad and Alex. And I was deceived. And I was broken by my own mother. What are you doing? What are you doing? Let's unpack some of that a little bit. Let's start with fairly early on in that conversation. Lori says you weren't there and you didn't know what happened. This is going to be a perpetual theme in this call. She will repeatedly tell Colby that he wasn't there, that people weren't there. They don't understand. They don't know what happened. And and we'll talk about that in a bit. But before we do, I think one of the critical moments in this call is he, Colby asks Lori, so he says to Lori, tell me that you have Jesus on your side. And she says, I can tell you that. In other words, she answers affirmatively. Very rarely in this call does she answer anything affirmatively. But in that moment, she says, yes, I have Jesus on my side. She won't say his name, but she says that Jesus is on her side. So right away we have this, she's playing her hand a little bit. She's telling us that she still believes everything that she believed before during this call that she does in some, in a peculiar way. She she sees Jesus as condoning the murder of the kids. Right. So, I mean, a lot of people have pointed out and told us over the past few years, how crazy it is that, that if you see Jesus as signing off on murders and being fine with that condoning murder, that obviously that's very contrary to how most people I think would think of Christianity. So, so right away, I think this, this, this affirmation that she can say that, yes, I, I, Jesus is on my side. He agrees with what we did here is okay. Right away. She's telling us that not only does she believe all this stuff and continue to believe all this stuff, but in many ways she's showing us how distorted her belief system is from say like a historical Christian viewpoint or Mormon viewpoint, right? She's she's deviating so far from the norm that in some ways, it, it, I think that's part of the issue here is, is this becomes really hard to understand because she's so far on the extreme that it's, you know, it's, you have to try to get into her mindset and we'll, we'll kind of do that tonight. This is the first moment I think that's really significant is that he, he pushes her and forces her hand to acknowledge whether Jesus is on her side. In other words, he's kind of pressing her belief system about Christianity. She says, I can tell you that. So she she's basically saying that Jesus 
thinks that murdering all of these people and these children is okay. To me, that's an incredible moment. It shows you how far down the rabbit hole she's gone and how extreme her beliefs have become and how she won't relent. She won't relinquish in spite of the fact that the world has been looking at her and challenging her and her son is confronting her. Her son is in her face. She will not relinquish her belief system or she will not look at reality. That's where I start because it, it really shows that very little has changed. Colby's trying to confront her on this issue by saying essentially, you know, mom, Jesus does not condone murder, but you are. So what gives? Like, what do you not see what you've become? And, and of course, he can't make any headway. So this is really the moment where I think we see that very clearly. Colby is challenging her belief system, the belief system that he knew growing up when she was different and maybe not as extreme. And so, so I think this is an interesting moment to me. Some people are pointing out, and it's something I brought up to you, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, but she didn't really answer him. You know, he continued this. You know, she yeah. did say, he's on my side. And then he said, say it. Um, right. Say that he did this, that this is his thing. And he kind of kept that theme throughout the whole call. Yeah. And Colby's really religious. Lori's really religious for good or for bad, or mostly bad. But that's a part of their relationship. And she, to me, never seemed like she was fully answering beyond this moment. She said, he is on my side. But then as he, as he pushed and prodded, I actually felt like she did avoid saying it so firmly. Well, she knows she's been recorded. You know, that's another interesting component of this. I think that this question about competence and whether she understands fully what's going on, she, she shows here she does because she's being recorded and she never plays her hand openly. I mean, we can read between the lines when she says, when he says, do you have Jesus on your side? And he says, she says, I can tell you that, that she does. She's not saying it, but she is saying it. It shows that she's aware. It shows that she's, she's playing a little bit of a game with Colby here in yeah. the sense that she's not going to really fully play her hand because she knows she's being recorded. Somebody who is incompetent and maybe floridly psychotic is going to have a lot more trouble understanding those nuances, by the way. She understands those nuances. She goes up to the edge with Colby and she won't take, you know, she's obviously not taking any accountability, but she avoids crossing that line and saying what Colby wants. I think that's another interesting part of this phone call is that at least in this moment, she certainly seems to be aware and competent and more than capable of kind of playing this cat and mouse game with Colby. So that's something else going on here. I read to heavenly father and I said, you tell me father. Oh, I have all made these judgments. They think they know what happened. They think they know what happened. Do you know that you told me? You know what you told me? Yes, because you weren't there. So you... You're right. I wasn't there. I was kept That's in right. black. And one day, you will know... Murder. One day... Murder. You will know what actually happened. You're right, because you know what, Matt? And we all will stand there with everything you. into the light. You're yeah. absolutely right. He will convict the people who act in his name with pure... Blasphemy. 
funny? This is funny? This is funny. You're laughing. Like, this is funny. How come your camera's on, Mom? You don't want to look at me in the eye? Why can't you look at me? It's nice just you and me. I'm in my house alone. I love you. I always will. One day you will see and one day you will understand. Go ahead and hang I up. Do love see you. how that works for you. You gonna hang up? I don't. I don't have anything else to say. You obviously don't know. Let me tell you, you weren't mom. there. You weren't there. Summer wasn't there. My mom wasn't there. The police weren't there. The FBI weren't there. Your Nobody mom was, there. was there. Kylie and JJ, mom. Yeah, and guess Kylie what? They know. They Barely. know exactly what happened. And they love me. And we are still together forever. They love me, and they are fine, and they do know the truth, and I know the truth. And we're the only people that do. So you can judge me, Colby, all day long. Go ahead and judge me. The whole world has. The whole world has judged me. me, They don't know, and you don't know. You don't know what I've been through, and you don't even give a crap what they've been through. Nobody does. Except for me. I'm the one that knows. I am the one that was in the hospital with Tylee for hundreds of days watching her suffer. I am the one that was there doing everything with JJ every day. I was the one who did it all these years. You did it all to throw it in the garbage. They're not. You don't know what happened. You don't know what happened. Freaking matter what happened if they're buried in your new husband's backyard. Tell me that matters what happened. You tell me that you did this in Jesus' name, Mom. I have to hear that out of you. You believe it, that you are not afraid. Every witness of Christ will scream his name when he comes back. So you are that person. You I am that person. That I Jesus am that person. And he will come to you. Oh, yeah, Cole, because that's what it is. Okay. You don't even know. You weren't even when there. I asked you about Tyler in October, what did you tell me? What did you tell me? What lies did you feed me? Why would you lie to me if you were so, if you're with the Lord and you've seen him and I'm just talking purely to you and you've seen Jesus Christ, where's the fear? Why would you tell me something? Why were you afraid? Why is everyone against you? Why is everything against my mom? You can be against me all you want. One day, we will all stand there with Jesus. We will all stand there with Jesus, and you will know the truth of everything. Not for me. You're telling me that this was all done in light. Say it. Tell me that this was done in Jesus' name. You don't know what happened. Why? Why don't you know, Mom? Oh, because I was kept in the dark to protect me? You know who needed protecting my little dead siblings? That's who needed protecting, Mom. This Where were you? is not. Sit a- up. That what you think you need? You ran. I had it. A month later, you ran away. I never wanted you guys to leave. I would have taken those kids in one second. I would bring them into my home, and I would have taken care of them. That's not even a question to me. Yeah, everybody. You says can't that. say that you know. Everybody says that. Says it now. Where was my offer? I did everything me, for them. Well, me, I Peter Griffin run away together to Hawaii. How about that? If you would have offered me, you would have known. You cannot sit here and lie. That's what everybody. That is not the truth. Okay, that's what people are thinking. They were murdered. They were and then you walk away. 
So you don't know that. No, that is not what happened. That is what happened. You tell me what happened. If you can tell me what happened, then I don't care. If you can actually explain it, then it's different. I would love but you can't. to talk to you about it. Mom, you've been saying that you've been wanting to tell me for a very long time, and you never say it. When I listened to this again earlier today, and I keep hearing this banter, and I keep thinking, I'm trying to figure out what Colby's thinking. And Colby, Colby sees this as murder. Yes. He sees this as probably Alex Cox or maybe Chad. I, you know, he, he's, he's assigning a human being to these murders. Yes. And so when I listened to it again, I started to figure out why they're not communicating and why this is a miscommunication. And so here's the, this is the big reveal. And I think for me, you know, for me, I, I see human beings as committing murder, right? Most of us do. Human beings kill one another. That's what they do sometimes. Hopefully not that often, but when human beings are dysfunctional and angry and violent, sometimes that's what happens. But I realized that Lori doesn't see this as murder because Lori doesn't see these murders as having been committed by a human being. The reveal is that Lori believes that the children weren't murdered. They were taken in a merciful fashion by an angel or angels or some translated being or something that wasn't human. And so they're not communicating because when Lori keeps saying, one day you'll understand and you weren't there, like this whole thing about being there is really important. But because I think Lori doesn't actually see that a human being did this. I think even if even if Lori says or thinks it's Alex Cox, she thinks that Alex Cox is not human in the sense that he's a warrior and he might be translated, right? During the blessing, we see how Chad interprets Alex Cox, how he, how he perceives Alex Cox. And remember right. that when Lori, when Lori and Chad were sealed, they both said that Jesus Christ was present. Correct. Lori's always talking about angels. When Chad was arrested, Chad believed that the children, that the remains would be taken up to heaven or that they would be removed so the police yeah. wouldn't have any evidence by mm -hmm. an angel. Although I will share one little scoop. Chad, right before his arrest on June 9th, 2020, yeah. as police were searching in his yard for JJ and Tylee's remains, which they were about to find, wired or sent, I don't know how he did it, but sent three of his children $8,000 each. Yeah, Almost prepping for, a, prepping for a, an arrest. But you're right, there's another. There's, there's, if you look closely enough, and I think and if you get into Lori's, really delve into Lori's belief system, I think the thing that hit me today was... The miscommunication here is that Lori doesn't see any of this as occurring between human beings. That Lori thinks that the kids were literally zombies and they weren't murdered. They were somehow released from their bodies and they were released by angels or translated beings. That Lori doesn't see this drama as occurring between humans in the human materialistic world. And I think that's where that's where her smugness comes in. That's where she, when she keeps saying, "One day you will understand," you weren't there. Like what she's saying essentially is, "You don't get my beliefs. You don't get Colby. 
that they weren't murdered at all. They were just released or taken or whatever term she wants to use, right? That, so I think there's a fundamental miscommunication because Colby is like most of us. Colby thinks that when you take someone's life in a violent fashion, you're murdering them. But Lori doesn't see it that way. I think Lori truly believes that this has to do with angels. It occurs on a spiritual plane. And so that's the miscommunication. When she says you weren't there, I think what she's saying in a way is, you can't see what I see. You can't see the spiritual dimension that I can see. So you won't understand. You can never understand. And it, you know, it's, it's hard to get into that mindset because and it, it was hard for me to see it because I'm used to dealing with, you know, real life materialistic murder, which is what, which is exactly what happened here. But that's not murder. how Lori. This is murder. Yeah. This is murder, but that's not how Lori sees it. She sees it as something else. So when you use the term murder with Lori, it's not going to register because to her, this is not murder. This is, she said, Zulema said that Lori felt like the children being deceased was an act of mercy, right? That's similar in the sense that she believes these children are possessed. In fact, she says in that, in part of that, what we just listened to, you don't know, she says, you don't know what they've been through, meaning the children, you don't know what they've been through. What she means this is, is this is the worst she, part for me. What she means is they're zombies, they're suffering, they're in pain. Again, like it, it's to us, it's counterintuitive because we don't live in this spiritual plane that Lori's on. But I think what she's saying is they've been through more than you can imagine. These kids suffered. They needed to be released and they were released on the spiritual dimension or the celestial dimension by something that wasn't human. Even if that was Alex Cox, Lori doesn't see that as occurring in the human world in the materialistic world. She sees that occurring in another dimension. And so that I think that's where this becomes really confusing to a lot of people because to get into that particular worldview, it takes some work. It took me, it took me some work, but I finally, it finally clicked for me when I, when I listened to this again, that these two are just, they're miles apart because Colby sees his siblings as, real people that he interacts with and loves and wants to play with again. That's not how Lori sees it. Lori sees these children as zombies. She sees them as existing in a different dimension and therefore being released in a different dimension. And so it's a really, it's obviously a really peculiar belief system, but it's a belief system that's driving her and it's driving her communications and it's driving everything in her world and it's what's it's what's leading to their inability to connect and they'll never connect unless Lori acknowledges that this was murder and not something else. I don't know what she would call it. Release. I don't know. Whatever it is she thinks this is, she doesn't think this is murder. I want to go back to April Raymond's testimony, actually. April Raymond testified as well on Thursday. April has a lot of stories to share, a lot of things to say, but they she pretty much stuck to how Lori tried to recruit her into the belief system. Yeah. That she had been friends with Lori for a long time. They were in what was called the primary presidency together, uh, meaning that they helped the kids, that they learned of Jesus and the faith. They traveled together. They spent time on the beach together. They Their kids were friends. They were all close, in other words. And that her belief system sort of changed and that Lori tried to then recruit April. 
And April shared how she started telling her about the second comforter experience. She gave her this book, The Second Comforter, that all of a sudden she started talking about meeting Jesus Christ, being a gatherer, being 144, had to do with Jason Mao, she said. She dropped Jason Mao's name and Thor's name and Chad's name. Anyway, she answered this question. She didn't believe it. And she told this to Lori. And at that moment, Lori concluded that April was not ready to hear this message. Rather than thinking, oh, I might be wrong, you know, let me check my confirmation bias. Oh, a few people <laughs> in my life are right. telling me that maybe this is bizarre. Lori just took it as, oh, April is just not ready for this higher message, this higher belief system. She has to be ready. And if she doesn't believe it, she's just not ready. So as far as why didn't she tell Colby about it? At this point, Colby wasn't even a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He had left that church when he got married and joined his wife Kelsey's. I don't know if it was non-denominational, but he became what he refers to as Christian. I think more of a non-denominational. Let me chime oh, in ahead. on that. Okay, too quickly. Ahead. So, you know, some people are more suggestible than other people. And some of that's temperamental. Some of it is I could get into a whole thing about beliefs and why people believe things. And that's probably best left for a, a later show. But in a nutshell, we're going to, and it, let me just say this really quickly that there was a philosopher, David Hume, who, uh, a Scottish philosopher, David Hume, who had, who was probably the first person to really think deeply about the nature of beliefs from a philosophical standpoint. And his perception was that beliefs are essentially feelings, or they can be. But for some people, beliefs are feelings. For other people, beliefs are more rational. There's something that was called justified true belief, which is that exactly what it sounds, that some people stand step back from their beliefs and they have to rational they have to make sense of them from a rational standpoint. And so they in other words, they justify their beliefs based on reason. Other people are much more emotional and they just they cling to beliefs based on their feelings about certain things. And so I think in that broad sense, some people are much more suggestible and much more susceptible to spurious beliefs, such as that the earth is flat, for example. You know, there are people that still believe that, even though the evidence is clearly against that. They believe it because it has to do, it's not rational, it has to do with something they're feeling. So for whatever reasons and whatever the context is and whatever the subject is, people really vary. But people that are more susceptible to seeing beliefs as feelings are going to jump on beliefs much more readily if they somehow resonate with someone emotionally. Psychologists sometimes call this hot cognition. Hot cognition is when you have a set of beliefs or thoughts that are closely associated with emotion. And hot cognition essentially means that when certain beliefs get triggered or thoughts get triggered, that you're immediately emotional about it. So you can't really step back and assess it, which is kind of contrary to the whole philosophical idea of justified true beliefs. So which is the ability to step back and look at your beliefs and examine them to see if they're logical and if they make sense, if they're empirically grounded, which means they're based on facts and evidence, right? Those are two very different ways of looking at the world. So the short answer is, do I know which camp Colby's in? No, I don't know for sure. But my guess is that April Raymond, for example, is probably less emotional about her beliefs and more factual and less, and, and in that sense, she's less easily to persuade. Lori and Chad clearly would fall in the camp of being more emotional and more feelings-based about their beliefs. 
that's an important distinction to make in terms of evaluating that question. By saying Lori believes we're in no way excusing her, may justice be served. In fact, it's it's the opposite. By saying that she believes, I think we're holding her more accountable because the, the other thing about beliefs, I think there's a big question in philosophy about if you hold a set of beliefs just based on your feelings and they're completely irrational and illogical and they can create harm, do we have a moral and ethical obligation to then examine our beliefs and correct our beliefs so that they're not as harmful? In some ways, by saying that she's a true believer and her beliefs are extreme, I think in some ways, I, I think we're maybe holding her more accountable and saying, why aren't you examining these beliefs? You lose weight, it comes back. You lose it again, it comes back again. And if this cycle sounds familiar, you're not alone and there is a better way. What if you could take a weekly shot to lose weight and keep it off? That's where Roe comes in. Roe provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. The Roe Body Program pairs a weekly shot with lifestyle changes so you can lose weight and keep it off. Roe handles it all, even insurance paperwork. If eligible, you have access to a provider on demand. You can sign up online from home, no doctor's visits. Average weight loss, get this, 15 to 20% in a year with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria do apply. Go to road.co slash hidden. Sign up today and you will pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash hidden. A quick word from our sponsor. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and I want to tell you about a very special book. It's called MyLifeInABook.com. It's a service that also turns your mom's life stories into a book. Every week, MyLifeInABook.com will send your mom a question via email, and then your mom types her responses or record her voice, and MyLifeInABook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, her adventures, her strength and perseverance after losing John's mom just a few months ago. Sharing her stories helps us keep her memory alive. And so we've gifted mylifeinabook.com to family members. My dad is legally blind and typing can be tedious when you can't see, but my dad can actually record his answers with voice and mylifeinabook.com transcribes his audio. It's been an enjoyable thing for my dad to tell his stories and his book is almost done. I don't think there is any gift that matters more than preserving our stories. Stories change us and teach us about what we value most. This service now puts our stories into the most beautiful, high-quality book. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code HIDDENTRUECRIME at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code HIDDENTRUECRIME for 10% off today. Why do so many dogs suffer from health issues? It turns out that actress Katherine Heigl, who helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says that she is seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is that the way many dogs' foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She has made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step -step how anyone can do the same thing and see incredible changes in their dog's health. Look, 
John and I are dog lovers and are currently searching for the perfect family addition and how to keep them healthy and happy. So if we can help keep your best friend healthy too, we are happy. Go to badlandfood.com slash hidden true crime and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash hidden true crime. Do you have a moral and ethical obligation to examine these beliefs? Because people have died because of right. these beliefs, right? So that was the next thing I wanted to share. In court, every day of trial, there hasn't been a single day that these beliefs and this belief system and people that believe these things have come up. This trial is an absolute examining of extreme religious beliefs. In the opening statements, they brought up extreme beliefs. Every witness so far, not every, not law enforcement, but as far as friends, they have discussed extreme religious beliefs, even Colby's call, April, Zulema, Melanie, David, people that aren't official, but just witnesses to what they saw happening. It's been about religious beliefs. You know, Melanie Gibb tries to claim she didn't totally believe, as does David Warwick. And, and you're right, John, that, that actually just drives me crazy. It makes it, I, it, makes it worse to me. Someone can have faith and still evaluate their beliefs based on evidence. I think it's it's when that split becomes too extreme that it presents problems. You can have faith and you can be a believer and you can still evaluate evidence that's consistent with, if, unless maybe the faith, maybe you're, if your beliefs are too extreme, it's going to be more difficult. But I, I don't think it's necessarily one or the other. I would agree with that. As someone that is a faithful person, I concur. As a journalist, I can really weigh evidence and even try to separate myself from my biases. Again, I think my insight earlier today in listening to this conversation again was that Lori does not, she really does not see this as murder. You know, what about this though? What about that day that she refused to see the children's autopsy? As you said, she was disassociating. And, and you know, she did cry. She did cry while listening to Colby's testimony and seeing Colby. It was legit. Her face was red. She was dabbing her eyes with a tissue and, and dabbing it in not very, a very dramatic way, kind of lightly trying to, I think, save a little bit of mascara she might have had on or something. The two most emotional days have been seeing her children's autopsies and um, for everyone in the court and, and the jury, as well as Colby's phone call. I would say it's been the two most emotional moments. Those are the two most factually based days, too, in the sense that those are both instances of significant evidence challenging her beliefs. So I, I think there's a lot of denial there, and it's probably almost impenetrable, her belief system. But in the two instances where there may have been a little bit of a challenge to her beliefs, yeah, she's emotional because it's probably the first time that her defenses have really been, I don't want to say cracked a little bit. I don't, you know, that they've been challenged or they've been confronted. So, yeah. so that, that, that would explain why, right? That, that those have been the most emotional and factually based challenges to her belief system. And I agree. We're not taking away accountability by, by sharing this belief system. In no way are we even saying she's incompetent. As people have pointed out, she manipulates people. She lies to people. She deceives people. All those things are still true. She yeah. dismisses people. She dehumanizes people. She she allows people to be killed. She has a lot of confirmation bias, I see, where she wants something 
And so thus she'll create a belief system around it somehow to make it happen. But in some ways she strangely believes it. So again, by pointing out truth to some bizarre things, you're right. We're not taking away her accountability. And you're right. We, we started hitting a true crime podcast to delve into the hidden motives because we don't want things like this to happen again. And if we deny what we see, we don't ever get to the root of the problem. We don't ever say this is a problem and we can stop it next time or acknowledge what it really is. Yeah, so the right, exactly. The so the other side of the belief equation is the, one of the things Hume, the Scottish philosopher said was even though beliefs for many people are largely feelings, that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a certain amount of logic and 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 reason that enters the equation too. So I think Hume would would definitely say that if if your beliefs are based solely on feelings, then you're going to have a lot of problems too, because you're going to you're going to be dragged through life by your feelings, and you're not going to sit back and evaluate anything logically. So I think for Hume, the ideal is is to kind of meet halfway, to meet in the middle, to have reason and logic with feelings in some combination, and th that's probably the best way to challenge your beliefs or to consider our beliefs is to, to find that middle ground. One question that has been posed throughout this, and then we'll get back to listening to Colby's uh, jailhouse call. And we're not dismissing Colby's anger either. I am actually so proud of Colby. I, mean, I don't think anybody's thinking that, but I feel like some people saying, oh, you're dismissing her accountability or you're dismissing this call. Like Colby was doing what what needed to be done to attempt to drill reality into his mother. He was so angry and rightfully so. And that's why like he, she would not acknowledge anything and he deserved that acknowledgement and she deserved his rage after what she did to him and his whole family. Yeah. Colby, Colby told me that he just wanted her to acknowledge what she did. He just, he was looking for some type of closure and he felt like the best way and not I, when I say closure, I don't mean full closure. I mean, just some way to accept the situation and to cope with the situation. He was just looking for some way to, as he says later in the call, that he wasn't sure he would survive. That he he said the pain in his body was so intense that he felt at times like he would die. He wasn't sure he could survive this. So when I say closure, I mean he just wanted to survive. He wanted and the best way for him to do that according to Colby, was just to have his mom own up to some of it, to take some accountability and to acknowledge it. Otherwise, he felt like he was living in this alternative universe. I think a lot of us are really triggered by Lori possibly being incompetent or innocent or all that. And again, we're not saying any of that. But what is the difference between really, really extreme religious beliefs? And at what point does that become delusional? That's huh. something I've been having a hard time. And sorry, maybe that's a whole other show. You don't need to answer yeah, that. But that's... I think that's, a, that's actually a question I posed to Ashley Banfield on News Nation before this trial started is, what do you think might be some of the questions that we're going to have to process and analyze during this trial? And I said, at what point do yeah do these extreme religious beliefs are they extreme religious beliefs is it delusional you know at what it, point you know it it so the field of psychology has been has a lot of research trying to answer that question it's it's a really difficult question to answer and if and the evidence for that would be the fact that multiple people have performed evaluations forensic evaluations on Lori and they've come to different conclusions so uh, you know this 
this actually goes back in terms of the history of Western thought. This actually goes back to Plato and the idea of the cave and how in the cave you couldn't see reality, but if you left the cave in the true light of the sun, you would see reality and truth. And your question at the at the highest level is a question about how do we make distinctions between truth and fiction and basically or truth and you know between reality and illusion. That's that's the way Plato would put it. And I don't you know the I mean that so. Your question is, you're talking about almost 3,000 years of Western thought that's tried to answer that unsuccessfully. So from a very pragmatic standpoint, I think the experts that were brought in to assess Lori have not agreed. And I think that's really all you need to know that my, I don't, you know, I haven't seen any of that work, so I can't comment on it. But I do know that, you know, she's, that there's been multiple opinions and there's no consensus. So that that alone tells you that if forensic experts can't agree, that we're probably dealing with some gray area and some difficult terrain in terms of knowing when it crosses over into delusion or knowing, you know what I mean, knowing knowing what's too extreme and what's not. I think it's it's a really, really hard question to answer. You know, what we just listened to, I hope that most people heard it before we had started this discussion was Lori. Again, you did state this, Lori saying, well, Tylee and JJ, you weren't there. The FBI wasn't there. Summer, her sister wasn't there. I know, you know, JJ and Tylee were there, which just sounds the most like the most horrendous thing ever. They were there while being murdered. Yes, of course, they were there. Uh, JJ and Tylee were there and they love me. And then after she states with this certainty that her murdered children love her, she then yeah. jumps into, you weren't there when I spent hundreds of hours with Tylee at the hospital. That was such a bizarre jump to me. And you and I have discussed Tylee's hospitalization. You have yeah. uh, suggested uh, through research and evidence, some possibilities there, some possibility. Uh, we, Lori has a history of poisoning people. Lori has a history of wanting this type of attention. We wondered about Munchausen, uh, right. which is now not called that. But uh, what did you think about this strange transition from you weren't there when the kids were murdered. The murdered kids were there. They loved me. You weren't there when I spent 100 hours with Tylee in the hospital either. That's well, a, that's some twisty stuff right there. Yeah, I know, right? It, it it's she's associating murder and love with one another, which is yeah, that's a you're you're doing a lot of mental gymnastics when you when you go down that path. That you know, we murdered the kids, but I know they still love me. I think it speaks to this idea that we've talked about repeatedly with Lori, which is. What she wants above all else is love. The attention and the validation and all of that is in some ways playing into this need for love, this this endless abyss of love that she seeks. And in fact, that's precisely what Chad Daybell sort of used to to you know to persuade her was he was telling her that she was a goddess and that that they would have a celestial love, sort of like we knew that she was obsessed with Twilight that she she wanted this immortal eternal love that would go on forever and again we're 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 back in the celestial realm right it's not she's she struggles to really be grounded in this world and so i think that speaks to that to acknowledge that these children were murdered without somehow equating it with love i think is 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 nearly impossible for her she has to bend that a little bit she has to distort that and associate it with love because that's what she wants. That's what she's all about. And she's 
no matter what, she's going to cling to this idea that the children loved her, even though they were murdered and presumably murdered in part because of her. But yeah, it is it is a really peculiar moment in, in that call where she's equating love with murder and the kids still love her, even though they were murdered. I mean, it's it's hard to fathom. Okay, so this is actually a good transition because people are actually asking a few things about if the defense is, if this is going to help the defense because Colby was blaming Chad for his mother changing. He wanted to hit Chad in the face with a shovel. Mm. He, you know, the, the defense, uh, when they cross-examine, you can tell that they're often sort of pushing for this narrative of other people being responsible, whether it's Chad, whether it's David Warwick, whether right. it's Melanie Gibb, whether it's Zulema. And that leads us to David Warwick. So in order to answer that question or talk about that question that people have, is this somehow helping the defense by blaming Chad? I think we should delve into David Warwick. I was I was fascinated. I was triggered. I was angry. I was all sorts of things with David Warwick. And uh, I've talked to John a lot about it. You've listened to a lot of the things, uh, a lot of his testimony that I've shared with you, particularly the defense's cross-exam. Let's, let's start there and uh, we'll, we'll get on, into this discussion a bit. Yeah. On that question quickly though, the, it, potent, it could potentially be a problem for the prosecution but they, unless they're able to tie Chad and Lori's belief systems together, and let, right, and that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to connect them. That's how. So, but if if they just try to pin it, the defense, I'm sure this is what what I've called the Breaking Bad defense, which is Chad comes in the picture, Lori breaks bad, she becomes this completely different person, and Chad is responsible for everything. That's the Breaking Bad defense. I think the prosecution is aware of that and. They're going to want to obviously tie Lori closely to Chad. They have the Melanie Gibb call. There's a lot of evidence showing that Chad and Lori both knew. They both acted together, right? And so that's how you, I think that's how you kind of overcome that obstacle. We're not team defense or team prosecution. We're team, we're team truth. We're team evidence. We're team justice. One thing I want to say that is interesting about the defense is, you know, they, they did get the death penalty off the table early on. We probably one of their biggest goals. So I think probably a bit more relaxed knowing that yeah. they have already accomplished their main goal. One thing I've appreciated about the defense is that their defense doesn't seem to be Lori is innocent. In fact, their opening statements kind of implied that this is a hard case, but everyone deserves a fair trial and I'm here to make sure things don't get taken out of context that things are accurate and that the truth is out. I actually really respected the opening statements. I mean, I, I know that a lot of people disagree, so I'm not trying to persuade someone the other way, just sharing my opinion. Go it's ahead. also worth noting that every the goal of every defense team is to force the prosecution or the state to make their case and to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. So no matter what else they're doing, they're forcing the state to really up their game and to prove their case, right? And that's and that's good too. That's that's the way our legal system works. So whether you love them or hate them or whatever, it's it's yeah. just it's the nature of the game. It's the nature of the game, and you're right. When you have a good defense, you have a good prosecution because right, the prosecution then has to up their game and really prove their point. You're exactly right. And what the defense is doing is how I see it is I think they're really showing that if Lori is guilty. 
So are these other people. I, 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 I know that they probably have maybe a different agenda. So I'm not saying what they're doing. I'm saying how I feel, which is I feel that there are additionally, you know, co-conspirators. Those have been discussed by both the prosecution and the defense. And a lot of those co-conspirators are, are walking free and pointing the finger at, at one woman in, in the court who, I, again, I hope justice is served. But I, I hope other people are held accountable, too. And in many ways, I feel like the defense, their arguments is holding other people accountable. Well, and I, that's I good to me. One of the ways to introduce reasonable, reasonable doubt or so reasonable doubt is to blur the lines of accountability. Yes. And I, I think they're definitely doing that or trying to do that. You know, whether, what, how the jury sees it, I don't know. But to me, it's sort of, it reminds me a little bit of, of a drug cartel in the sense that you, you know, you go after El Chapo, you don't go after the, the, the middleman that's distributing drugs and doesn't really, you know, has a, has a role in the cartel, but doesn't have a massive role and isn't really responsible for a lot of the, the major drug transactions and getting drugs into different countries. And I think you have that problem here that you have a lot of witnesses that are sort of mid-level players in this cult or whatever you want to call it, but they're not running it. Right. And so the, right. the prosecution always has to make decisions about immunity and witnesses and they have to define what they're trying to do and what their goals are. So obviously it seems like their major goal here is to go after the the, the people at the top, just like you would go after El Chapo and not some mid-level, you know, drug runner. So there's always compromises, but I agree. I think that there is some issue here about blurring lines of who did what and when and who was accountable and who made decisions. And that's a sound strategy if you're trying to introduce some reasonable doubt. Sure. I agree. I just want everyone to know, though, as someone that's been sitting in court, I feel like there has been a lot of evidence pointed at both Lori and Chad. I feel like in more of a sense, the defense is pointing out that there are other accountable people here that should be held accountable. Right. And, and that, it, that, again, feels good to me. So grateful for the defense when it came to David Warwick. Let's And, and no doubt, it's a, you and I have talked about this we talked about this, I don't know, over a year ago about Melanie Gibbs' role and David Warwick's role. And, you know, we analyzed Melanie Gibbs' interview and, and there's a lot of questions there. It's certainly not clear cut. There's a lot to talk about. We want to talk about the nightmare. I want to talk about a few things the defense said. What, where, where would you like to start? Uh, the nightmare, I think the most important part of the testimony has to be the nightmare because I, I've got some serious questions about that. So the, the nightmare, do you want to just talk about what that is really quickly. I, I yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me give the, let me set the stage for what this nightmare is. So the nightmare came out in some early police interviews that were released in FOIA docs with Melanie Gibb and David Warwick explaining that the night JJ died, not only were they in Rexburg staying in a little tiny town home with Lori and sleeping in JJ's room and, and Tylee wasn't there. In the middle of the night, David had a nightmare that he claimed is the worst nightmare he's ever had. And it was so bad. According to Melanie and David, they got up in the middle of the night and Melanie rushed to Lori's room to try the door to get, or sorry, Melanie rushed to Lori's room. Yeah. To try to open her door and request that Lori come out to give David a blessing, uh, meaning, um, you know, that was the question that the defense drilled home. Why did you need a blessing for a nightmare? And the door was locked. 
And at that point, they tried calling Lori and they tried calling Chad. This would be the early morning hours. So two-ish, three, I think two o'clock is what Melanie said. Again, this was the night. So they had seen JJ that night. David Warwick was possibly the last person to see JJ. He claims he saw JJ being carried upstairs by his uncle Alex into Lori's bedroom that night while they were podcasting asleep on his shoulder. And then we fast forward to middle of the night in this little tiny townhome house where I'm sure you, you know, can hear a lot. And he has a nightmare middle of the night. They are trying desperately to get a hold of Chad and Lori. No success. The next morning comes around. And according to David and or Melanie, Melanie says that David asked uh, if he could see JJ to find out if JJ was a zombie. Melanie Gibbs says that to police. Uh, David Warwick in court says that he asked where JJ was because he had heard he'd been crawling on cabinets and knocking off a picture of G uh, Jesus. And he wanted to make sure JJ was okay. He was just <laughs> concerned about JJ. Although yeah. when he mentioned in his testimony that Chad and JJ got into a scuffle and that Chad then came away with a scratch on his neck, neck, a six foot three foot, you know, six foot three inch man had a scratch on his neck from a seven year old boy. That didn't seem to concern him, but you know, not knowing where he was the next morning after this serious nightmare, they were allegedly concerned. So concerned though that right. they didn't end up leaving and never calling police. And uh, here we are today. I think the scratch indicates that Chad Dable is perfectly capable of violence. Yes. So let's just say that. But putting that aside, the nightmare. So the way I see it, there's this nightmare is really important for many reasons. But let's let's break it down. There's there's essentially three scenarios I think that can occur with this nightmare. Number one, there's no nightmare at all. The nightmare is fabricated that they hear stuff. They hear perhaps violence, screaming, who knows what. And they call it a nightmare because they don't want to deal with the reality of what's occurring in that house. So that's scenario number one. That's a, that's a really big question I have. I mean, Melanie Gibb claims that he was screaming or talking in his sleep and that I think she woke him up, right? Like, it, if that's accurate, then I guess we have to say that he was asleep. But I think it's it's not – I'm speculating, but I think it's entirely possible that maybe he wasn't even asleep, that the so-called nightmare was, in fact, hearing something that they shouldn't have heard. They didn't want to get involved. They both agreed that David just conveniently lost all his memory that night. Also – as far as the nightmare goes, we don't know the content. Nobody has ever, he has never once disclosed what is in that nightmare, which for a psychologist, you know, if a client comes into my office and they have a nightmare, I'm going to want to know what that is. Freud is famously known for saying that the unconscious is the royal road. I mean, I'm sorry, that the, the, the royal road to the unconscious is dreams. So if you're having a nightmare, it in theory, would give you a lot of information, especially depending on the content. Like, what was in that nightmare? What happened in the nightmare? Why don't we know the content of that nightmare? Is it because there was no nightmare? Is it because they actually heard stuff and then they both agreed that they didn't want to talk about it? They didn't want to be dragged into court. They didn't want to become a part of the case. They both, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't want to push over into like conspiracy stuff here, but I have concerns that when you have the worst nightmare of your life and you don't remember it, it makes me question whether there was a nightmare at all and whether, in fact, perhaps there was something they heard that they didn't want to hear and they wanted to distance themselves from this entire situation. So that's scenario one. 
The second scenario is that perhaps he was partially asleep and he heard some screaming and he ignored it and went back to sleep. And then he had a nightmare. Another scenario is that maybe he was fully asleep, that he heard some screaming or something. He was aroused a little bit. He was awakened a little bit, and but went back to sleep and then had the nightmare. So I think, to me, those are different versions of what could have occurred. I think it's unlikely to me that on the night that J.J. is murdered, he just happens to have the worst nightmare of his life. That seems like a little too coincidental. I don't agree with the timing of that. So also not being able to identify the content of that nightmare. That's, I don't, I presume he's been asked many times, what, what was that nightmare about? And I don't, as far as I can tell, he's never described it. So that's troubling. He was asked again, tell us about this nightmare. And he stated that this nightmare was the worst nightmare of his life and that he was screaming. And then they went to go get a blessing and and then when they said, well, why would you need a blessing? He actually pointed the finger at his wife, Melanie Gibb, who I actually feel like he does a lot. He's kind of used her as a scapegoat. She gets a lot more public shame and ridicule than he does because he kind of hides behind his wife. And so, you know, the defense, Archibald asks David Warwick, why did you need a blessing? And David said, well, it was my wife that wanted it. I didn't need a blessing. She wanted it. But this was also after the defense said to him, what's the difference between a nightmare and a vision? You're a visionary man. And he 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 did this word salad. Like it was so confusing. Like, look, I'm right. trying to follow these belief systems that they have. I could not understand what in the world David Warwick was saying when it came to the difference between a nightmare and a vision. And then at one point, Archibald says to him, well, they're, they're both, then they're, they, they both are real. They're both real, you know? And he has, he doesn't say, yeah. I mean, yeah, he kind of admitted that they're both real in some way. They're a vision. And, and that made I, it a I, little weird too. Um, can I talk about how at the beginning when when uh, he almost wasn't even able to to testify? Because that kind of is important, I think, to the nightmare, too. So this is what I noticed. So right when David walked in. Oh, so this is how David walked into. I was outside. We were having a break. We were having a 10, 15 minute break because the witness needed to arrive still. That would be David Warwick. I was out talking to Nate Eaton. And all of a sudden, some guy comes by throwing Nate a fist bump. I mean, Nate was just kind of standing, but, you know, he 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 accepted the fist bump, I guess you could say. <laughs> I looked over and it was uh, David Warwick running in <laughs> and then he ran into court. And then once we were all seated, it started with David stating that he had completely forgotten that he'd been subpoenaed and all the rules of the subpoena that he wasn't supposed to talk to Melanie Gibb about her testimony, nor watch her testimony, nor watch anything about the case. Because, you know, how can you forget these rules the day before you're supposed to testify? And he admitted to watching Melanie Gibbs or listening to Melanie Gibbs audio of her testimony. He was not with her. They live in different states. She's in Arizona. He's in Utah. They have a long distance marriage. And they did not talk, but it took him 45 minutes of watching her testimony before he realized maybe he shouldn't. And they asked him where he was watching it. And then he said he, he stalled for a bit and said it was either East Idaho News or Hidden Crime. So then I said, objection, Your Honor, we're hidden true crime. No, um, <laughs> it was so he mentioned Hidden Crime. And the thing that stood out, though, that reminded me of Chad Daybell is he's explaining how he he's explaining that he he was sick and he was on antibiotics. So he blamed the antibiotics for making him forget and then said, well, it was around 45 minutes when 
all of a sudden I realized my conscience was telling me that I should stop. And that's where I'm getting to is when you read Chad Daybell's autobiography, Chad sort of has this outside voice that's talking to him. There's never just a thought process in Chad. It's always a different voice telling him something, whether it's don't go get your master's degree in college. It's not just his brain thinking. It's a voice telling him, don't kill these bees. You know, he talks about killing bumblebees. Don't kill these bees. And then it's an outside voice that tells him to stop, not his own conscience or his integrity or inner moral compass. And that's what I sensed with this statement by David Warwick is he's watching this testimony. He doesn't seem to have any feeling around it. He just pretty much admits, well, then around 45 minutes of conscience, which I also take as a voice is telling me that I should stop. And so then I stopped. In Melanie Gibbs interview with Chandra police, she says that he literally remembered nothing at all. Nothing, zero. He completely blacked out. I mean, that's not, a reasonable explanation for you have this horrible nightmare, the worst nightmare of your life, and you don't remember it. You remember nothing. I mean, it's just, it's, it's hard to fathom. Is it possible that he has some memory problems and maybe he's got some early dementia? Yeah, sure. There's, there's some of that. Maybe this was very stressful. Maybe he did forget a big chunk of it. I, that's all possible, but I don't know. I just have to feel like there's more going on here than meets the eye. And he remembered a little bit more um, this testimony. Yeah, he's he stated before that he's blocked things out. Um, I mean, he stuck to the basics and would like hem and haw, sort of like Melanie Gibb, but he never did say, I've completely forgotten everything like he has in the past. Yeah, which shows, again, it, it that makes one question his credibility. He remembers some, he doesn't remember anything. Now he remembers some. I mean, it just, it, he goes back and forth. It's, it's a problem. But it, again, for me, I I still wonder what they heard that night. And I don't know. I mean, is it is it possible that this was a nightmare? Is it possible that it was based on maybe he didn't hear anything? Maybe there was no screaming. Maybe there was no scuffle with JJ. I, I don't know. It seems to me that's possible, but it, I don't, it seems that there's some connection between what happened to JJ and maybe some sounds or some, whatever was going on there in that room and that nightmare. Well, yeah, they said that JJ woke up in the middle of the night. Again, this is a small town home yeah. that JJ woke up in the middle of the night was climbing on top of the fridge, on top of the cabinets I thought that was earlier in the day. That no, that we were told during the trial by David Warwick that they were, when he asked where JJ was, they relayed this information to him from the middle of the night that he'd woke up and done these things. So of course they heard things. So I guess my question to you though, is John, I sense sort of a disconnect between David Warwick and his conscience, sort of like this. It's like a limb of his that he has to remember. I, I think it's worthwhile. So, and again, this kind of gets into a little bit of Freudian stuff, but I think the nightmare is indicative of a fair amount of guilt. I think it's about guilt and guilt obviously has a tie to conscience. So I think, it seems to me like this nightmare is in some ways his attempt to work through his guilt. And in there, in that sense, it becomes a proxy for a conscience, I guess, yeah. because he doesn't, 
Yeah. Let's go with the first scenario where they heard stuff and didn't want to report it. Even then he's going to feel guilt. Even if there was no nightmare, he's going to have to have guilt. And for a normal person, of course, you just report it, call the police. But in this case, I don't, with their belief system, that's not as clear cut. So in that sense, he's got to work this through. I mean, <laughs> whose side is he on? Is he is he on the side of justice if a child's being murdered, or is he on the side of the cult and their beliefs? And I mean, he's doing podcasts with them. He's going to conferences and speaking, right? I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's where this becomes and still, really... to this day, he's still doing it. That's what else the defense got okay, out of yeah. him. You know, so you're still preaching with... Yeah, so that, that's where this becomes really complicated. You know, if if there's no nightmare at all and he's just covering it up and trying to keep some distance from this and perhaps he had nothing to do with it, he was just in the wrong place at the right wrong, wrong time, there's still a big issue here about conscience and seems to be a word he likes to throw around, by the way, but he's he's definitely trying to figure out, he's feeling some guilt and he's trying to figure out his loyalties and where they belong. I mean, for most of us, I think it's a no-brainer. We pick up the phone, we say, hey, look, I'm worried. You know, he knows about the belief systems. He knows about zombies and possession. He knows about all of this stuff. And he's yeah. hearing this, right? I don't know what he's hearing. Let's say he's hearing JJ scream. For most of us, that's a no-brainer. You get on the phone with 911 and you say, hey, look, I don't know what's going on here, but please get the hell over here. For him, I don't know. Maybe, it, you know... Maybe there was a nightmare. Maybe there wasn't. But if there wasn't, it becomes really problematic. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to not want the defense to succeed in <laughs> in showing that there were other people involved. I'll just say that. It's hard for yeah. me to not want. Well, that. you know, this was the type of witness. They, they put up, the prosecution puts them up on the stand to verify certain facts that are critical to their case, that JJ was in that room, that they saw him, he was wearing the pajamas, right? They, they, I think they basically just wanted a, a, a simple fact witness. And the problem with that is when you bring on somebody like Warwick with these nightmares, you open the door to a lot of uncertainty and you open the door. This is precisely the sort of thing the defense really <laughs> relishes. And because you have a witness that's, maybe not the best witness and obviously has some very extreme beliefs and he's still involved in the, this group. And so I, you know, this, this becomes a problem for the prosecution, this type of witness. And, and if you really, if you look closely at this whole nightmare scenario, I mean, they're, they're not breaking it down like we are obviously, but man, it, it raises a lot of questions and I'm not arguing that he didn't have a nightmare. I, I just think it seems peculiar Someone said, what do you mean he feels guilty because it seems like perhaps they don't have a lot of guilt? Well, that that's why that's why he's processing why? it. He's because he, he it's a struggle. My point is that there's guilt right. there in the sense that he's he's trying to process it unconsciously through this nightmare rather than picking up the phone and doing the right thing immediately, which is to call the police. So right. that's what I mean. Like most of us would just know what to do. It wouldn't be a question. We'd pick up the phone and we'd report possible violence or whatever's going on. Right. 
But for him, he's calling it a nightmare and he's deferring it. He's waiting. Oh, let's, you know, let me process this and figure out if I'm going to experience any guilt or let's see what my conscience does with this. It took him 45 minutes for his conscience to kick in after he listened to Melanie Gibb and he wasn't supposed to, right? 45 minutes is a long time for your conscience to kick in when you know you're not supposed to be doing that. Right. Ozzy right, Chad so like, says nightmare is an excuse for waking up and knocking on the door instead of saying they heard the crime being committed. Yeah. Someone else said, someone else said that um, this idea that, you know, he was climbing on the cabinet was also a cover up perhaps from Lori and Chad when, when other things are happening. And I do want to say about the climbing on cabinet story. It's very interesting. If, if someone happens to have the link, feel free to share it. But uh, Chad has a, a blog. A lot of it is uh, private, but you know what, what goes on the web stays on the web. It's um, uh, sort of like Vegas, I guess. And uh, so Chad tells this exact story about his son, Garth, by the way, that yeah. Garth was little and he climbed on top of the fridge and on top of the cabinets above the fridge. It's, it's very interesting and that he went to the temple and he prayed about it. But if they're going to make up a story, there's a story for you. Well, it's, it's, also, about it. it's also disturbing in the sense that there's this intentionality that they're, they're attributing to JJ, which is that somehow it, it's it, what's most, what's most upsetting to me is that they somehow see JJ as being responsible for his own murder because he knocked over a picture of Jesus, right? Like there's, they're making this connection between, Oh man, he really defiled Jesus because he knocked over a picture of Jesus to it, 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 in his testimony, he says essentially that JJ had an episode. He knocked over the picture of Jesus, and that's when Lori called Alex. Like this was an that was the final straw. A seven year old mistakenly and by accident knocked over a picture of Jesus, and now he needs to be punished because that's it. Like how could you possibly defile Jesus by knocking over his picture, right? Like that. <laughs> awful and then to hear and then to hear colby state he was the sweetest you know yeah. little boy right so i don't know you know there's so many disturbing things in his testimony and there's for me there's more questions than answers for sure but yeah that seems to be i the can't find the uh I, I can't find the blog right away um but it's also in his autobiography. I'll try to post it later for those that are interested. I, you do need to go get our son. Is there anything else you want to say, sweetheart? Uh, I think that's about it. I think for the Warwick testimony, the most important element was the nightmare because it really, really, like I said, it really raises a lot of questions about what really went, went on that night and who knew what and who heard what. And, you know, unfortunately, David Warwick and Melanie Gibb you know, assuming that they know what happened, they're, you know, they're not going to disclose that. So, yeah. uh, and I'm not saying they did. I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I guess I'd give them the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, they were there. They were in close proximity to potentially a murderous incident. Maybe they didn't hear anything. Maybe, maybe they don't know anything. I don't know. I, I suppose, I suppose I give them the benefit of the doubt, but with, with a lot of question marks. We are so grateful for our army of gems to be here with us because this case, uh, for those of you that know that have been here with us from the beginning, this is our case. This is a case we care about. This is a case 
that means so much to us. Hello, Hidden Gems. It's Lauren with Hidden, a true crime podcast. As a TV reporter, I learned the art of visual storytelling. So if you're like me, you enjoy listening, but also viewing. You can actually head to our YouTube channel, Hidden True Crime, to watch these interviews. Hit the subscribe button for surprise lives and breaking news. And for exclusive content, things Dr. John and I only dare say behind a paywall, become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash hidden true crime. You'll find bonus episodes, early releases, and insider info. Thank you for your endless support. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.